Hey everyone, Agatha Christie is so good at murder mysteries that she's for sure killed someone. Today's book is And Then There Were None, arguably her best book as measured by nightmares it gave me when I was 12. <laughs> I'm Kellen Erskine, I'm a comic, a father, and then I was none. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. I think 10 people getting murdered on an island would have been a great way to retire the character Gilligan. <laughs> Also, spoilers ahead. <laughs> Dave just told you the whole book. And Then There Were None is a murder mystery about a serial killer picking people off one by one. It's almost definitely just waiting to be found in the school library of your young child. And this is The Book Pile. Kellen, I, I wouldn't change this, but my childhood was full of people trying to protect me. And then I could just walk into the school library and read the darkest crap imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. <laughs> Amy in Quarantine says, Readers plus comedians make good friends and good podcasts. Amy, me and Dave aren't friends. <laughs> I look like I'm 16, but I'm 30, says, <laughs> The book pile is as close to an antidote for the blues as you can get. No joke. Thank you, person who is probably 16. <laughs> All right. And without further ado, here are three lessons that we took from And Then There Were None. All right. I have only one point today, but it's very long, which is how John Steinbeck should start all his books. <laughs> I've been studying <laughs> mysteries for the past couple of years to get better at writing them. And Agatha Christie is the master. So today you'll get to hear all of the top mystery tricks I've learned. But uh, a quick warning, this section has spoilers for Get Out, Knives Out, The After Party, Sharp Objects, Harry Potter, The Usual Suspects, and and Then There Were None. So if you plan to read or watch any of those, maybe come back to this section. All right, a first basic trick. If a character is a victim, we often don't think they're a villain. So in, in this book, our killer, Justice Wargrave, seems to get shot in the head. And as readers, we're like, okay, so it's not him. <laughs> and that's extreme, but Professor Quirrell is always getting bullied by Snape, so it's hard to suspect him. Although you know the CIA wouldn't miss him because of the turban. <laughs> Peter Pettigrew is introduced as a murder victim, so you never guess he's a villain. In The Usual Suspects, Verbal Kint has a limp, and he's always getting bullied. Also, remember how for decades we were all like, wow, Kevin Spacey's so good at pretending to be evil. <laughs> In Sharp Objects, the little sister is being abused by the mom, so you never suspect she's doing the murders. So now when I see a victim in real life, I'm like, yeah, they're hiding something. I say that out loud. <laughs> Also, the Peter Pettigrew thing, I found again another example of J.K. Rowling using people's names to also throw you off. It's oh, almost yeah. a cheating way to throw a red herring in there. I'm reading the Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with my five-year-old, and his mind wasn't blown with the Peter Pettigrew <laughs> reveal. He's actually sad about it because in his mind, this whole time, serious Black, he imagined as his big scary guy. <laughs> but in my son's head, Pettigrew, it, it sounds like, like you're petting an animal. He just always imagined this really nice guy. So now he, he's upset that this guy might get handed off to the Dementors. I bet your son wasn't blown away by the reveal because when you read it, Pettigrew never died. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next trick. Make the villain a force for good. In this book, the murders start happening 
And Justice Wargrave springs into action. He says, here's what we know. Here's how we can protect ourselves. We can't eliminate any suspects. And then he kills 10 people. (laughs) It's like Thomas Jefferson saying, oh, everyone should have liberty. (laughs) You see this a lot. In Knives Out, Ransom starts helping Marta. Rose in Get Out stands up to the racist cop. So we're all like, she can't be racist. Didn't you see her one action? (laughs) Mad-Eye Moody helps Harry cheat. And by the way, our hero, Harry, was always cheating at school (laughs) and then in a tournament with a huge cash prize and parents were worried about witchcraft. (laughs) Another version of this trick is sometimes the killer is who you least want it to be. In Get Out, it's his girlfriend who was always there for him. You don't want it to be Chris Evans because he's so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson two. Introduce characters at their most character which is a grammatically correct sentence. I have a two-year degree in English. So Dave, think of how many movies or TV shows that you've watched where your introduction to a character is watching their alarm go off and then they get in the shower and then they brush their teeth. They just sort of like get ready for the day. A tearful Dave crumples up his manuscript. Agatha Christie, we meet 10 characters very quickly, and we immediately get a sense of who each of these people are. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite examples of this is actually when two of these characters cross paths as we're meeting them. We go from Dr. Armstrong, who's sort of slowly driving along on his way to get on a boat. We meet him while he's thinking about how he has taken advantage of his patients in the past by making up simple diagnoses with like well-to-do women and then relying on their word of mouth to make them a more (laughs) sought-out after doctor and christy continues the narrative here saying and then with a devastating ear-splitting blast on the horn an enormous super sports dalmain car rushed past him at 80 miles per hour dr armstrong nearly went into the hedge it was one of these young fools who tore around the country he hated them (laughs) and then the next paragraph says Tony Marston thought to himself, the amount of cars crawling about the roads is frightful. There's always something blocking your way. (laughs) Pretty hopeless driving in England, not like driving in France where you really could let out. I love this. And also there's just humor in that hard cut from one character to the next. Uh To me, it's just as fast paced as a modern show like Arrested Development. We've met two characters in about 25 seconds. And with the contrast of their crossing of paths, we also get a glimpse of their future relationship. Mm -hmm. And we don't like either of them. (laughs) So there's just so much happening. And again, in a book where she has to juggle 10 plus characters, at least at the beginning. Buh, buh, buh. Uh, yeah, you, you don't have to juggle all 10 for very long. <laughs> it's yeah, it's like watching a bad juggler. <laughs> all right. Lesson one, part two, the lessening. <laughs> this has spoilers for Harry Potter, Knives Out, The Da Vinci Code, Bridgerton, and And Then There Were None. So the next mystery trick is get people to ask the wrong question. There's a part in this book where four people are left and one of them is out of the house, maybe getting ready for another attack. And as a reader, you're asking, okay, which of these four people did it? 
but the killer has already faked his death. So we're not even asking the right question there. Mm. And I noticed some great mysteries get you to ask the wrong question. In Knives Out, you're asking, is Marta going to get away with accidentally killing Harlan? So you're not asking, is one of these people really a murderer? In Prisoner of Azkaban, you're asking, is Harry going to survive the serial killer? So you're not asking, could there actually be a different killer? Also, I think slasher films get better if you assume the killer is killing because he's getting ratatouille by scabbers. <laughs> <laughs> a different version of this idea is the answer is something the reader never considered. So bad example, if you're watching Clue and it has six suspects, at the end, whoever it is, the audience is like, yeah, I thought it might have been them. <laughs> but I bet the audience didn't say, oh, I thought the memory of Lord Voldemort might be possessing Ginny via the diary and making her attack people. <laughs> also, it's always bothered me that the Clue movie has three alternate endings with three murderers because it means your detective work is meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> we don't watch murder mysteries for the ambiguity. <laughs> All right, last trick. And this one's not in the book. The killer is never that random side character. If a story wants you to think the killer is a random side character, I don't care if all the facts point at them. It's not them because there'd be no emotional payoff. Mm. I once read a mystery where near the end, this really old woman confesses and it's like, you've had like two lines. It's not you. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> or in Bridgerton, it's like, who is Lady Whistledown? Maybe it's this random dressmaker whose name I don't remember. Ooh. <laughs> In The Da Vinci Code, he wants you to think it's the bishop who has zero screen time. Although Dan Brown actually kind of sells it because you're like, is Dan Brown a bad enough writer to make the killer this random side dude? <laughs> Maybe. All right. Lesson three. Why are judges deified? <laughs> By the way, Dave, you know that I before E except after CBS? Uh -huh. We were only taught it because it rhymes, but it, it just isn't true. Both the order of E and I and I and E happen in just the word deified. So the rule <laughs> in this case is I before E except after D, and then we're back to normal after F and before the second D. <laughs> I homeschool my kids and they're going to go out into the world with crazy sayings that they think everyone else grew up with. <laughs> Maybe it's I before E unless it's a palindrome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I did that on purpose. So at one point in the book, when a few of the characters in this house on this island have been killed off, the remaining people are musing over who might be the killer. And one of them says that it could be the judge. And he says it by saying, well, he's played God Almighty for a few months every year anyway. That must go to a man's head eventually. Uh -huh. And I'm not saying that this happens, but the culture of the court system is odd to me. That they like wear robes and sit on an elevated throne. In the UK, they still wear those white wigs, which just baffles me, right? That you mm -hmm. would go to law school for years uh, to play dress up. <laughs> I once went to traffic court to protest a red light ticket. And it was just this dumpy building in San Jose, California. You know, the blueprint for that nondescript dentist office from the 70s that every city government still uses. <laughs> I walk in there and sit down in this small courtroom with rusty folding chairs, three dozen other people who are also trying to fight parking ticket fees so that they could have a Christmas. It's like <laughs> 7 a.m. And this judge walks in like he had a terrible night's sleep in the next room. 
<laughs> and we still all had to call him your honor. Mm-hmm. Do you have any opinions on this? Because this is weird to me. I feel like we could still have the same court system without having this weird sort of elevated figure in the room. What do you think the purpose of that is? Or is it just passed down culturally? I sometimes wonder if you have two choices. You can acknowledge that criminal justice is very hard. It's actually very hard to know who's guilty and how much they should be punished. Or you can say that there are these very wise people who can answer those questions very well. (laughs) And our society is quite just, actually. (laughs) One of those sounds a lot less scary to me. (laughs) I don't know why this reminds me of this story. Maybe it's just authority figures. You ever hear about that doctor who, he was incredible at diagnosing this one disease. Maybe it was mumps. He would diagnose it by putting his like gloved hand in the mouth and like feeling, I don't know, tonsils or something. Well, it turned out he was transmitting it on his hand every single time. Oh my God. But again, it is wild to me. And in England, it's not just judges, it's attorneys that also wear these wigs. I almost want to be a witness to a crime in London just so I can be on the stand in a courtroom. <laughs> And when an attorney approaches me, I can just be like, uh, so what do you want to know, George Washington? (laughs) If I testified in a British court, I would show up unironically in one of those rainbow clown froze. (laughs) (laughs) If I wanted to be fired as a judge in England (laughs) on my last day, I would get up and just start rapping a Hamilton song. (laughs) I would come in and every day my wig is longer and longer. (laughs) It's just like, do I have permission to climb your hair, your honor? (laughs) So So the point of this is right after the first death occurs in this book, the judge character pretty much becomes the alpha male and everyone is okay with it (laughs) because he's a retired judge. I still don't know why, but I went along with it too. And then obviously the the twist of the whole thing at the end is that he is the one who committed the murders, which is fascinating too, because there's a part in the book where this character who is suspicious that the judge might be the killer before the judge dies. He says, Maybe the judge wanted to go a step further and play Jerry and Executioner as well. Mm. And I love that that is exactly what he wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but by calling it out in the middle of the book, me, at least as a reader, I dismiss it like, well, they're not just going to tell me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Random facts. Kellen, I have a conundrum, which is... A lot of my favorite mysteries, I don't actually know how good they are as mysteries because I first read them when I was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But you've now read some of these as an adult. So I want to ask, uh, first off, did this book fool you? It absolutely did. And I thought it was great. I've brought up before that idea of a great story is one that you want to try and predict, but you don't want to be right. Mm-hmm. We want a story to make sense, but we still want to be surprised. And this got me absolutely. Wow. I, 
I suspected Wargrave along with the characters until he died, and that I never mm-hmm. even thought to think after that that one of these characters faked their own death. But it is a little weird that I didn't suspect Wargrave, the man who had both the words war and grave in his name. <laughs> Did Pettigrew teach me nothing? (laughs) It would be like if Vader's name was Darth Luke's daddy. (laughs) Also, you've brought this up before, too. The audiobook of this is a perfect example of a villain having the most bad guy voice of all of them because Dan (laughs) Stevens makes this guy sound so creepy. (laughs) Why not think that it's him? Because he's always like, well, maybe all of us should (laughs) think objectively. Another surprising thing about this mystery is that I didn't know that the title just gives away the whole story. (laughs) I was trying to think of other books that have names that spoil the ending. Lone Survivor. Uh, The Hobbit's subtitle is There and Back Again. So there's never a point where you're like, maybe the back again means they'll bring Bilbo's body back to the Shire. (laughs) And then Jaws. You know, the shark dies because he was attacked by a giant set of those wind-up chattering teeth. I think I'm remembering that movie (laughs) correctly. And Then There Were None also sounds like, in 10 years, the book that will be written uh, about cancel culture. (laughs) This book ends with 10 people murdered. And then at the very end, there's an epilogue, and it's a message in a bottle from the killer. And that's where all the murders get explained. And when we were kids, my cousin Brandon read this book, too. And as we were talking, I realized he hadn't read the epilogue. (laughs) (laughs) Which means he got to the end of a book of 10 murders and no explanation. And was just like, huh, okay. (laughs) I texted him about it today and he said, epilogues are supposed to be like post-credit scenes, in my opinion. (laughs) And that was another thing that I loved about this book is that it might be the first murder mystery I've ever read where the murder was never solved. Oh, yeah. And so it was just the murderer himself who's like, well, if no one puts this all together, here's the answer page. (laughs) I guess as a cop, if 10 people are dead and you know one of them is the murderer, you probably have a little less urgency. (laughs) So Agatha Christie holds the world record. Two billion books sold. Wow. And then There Were None was her best-selling novel. It it sold over 100 million, putting it in the top 10 best-selling novels of all time. Speaking of our previous episode, The Alchemist is also in the top 10 uh, of all time. (laughs) Crazy. Which is, yeah, which is a wild coincidence. But also, I think the moral of And Then There Were None is actually a little more clear (laughs) (laughs) than in The Alchemist, because I'm still not sure how I'm supposed to, you know, talk to the wind to achieve my dreams. But, (laughs) But Agatha Christie is very clear about, hey, Don't be responsible for anyone's death, or you might end up on an island with nine other people and kill them, too. 
<laughs> at one point when I guess the very good actor, Justice Wargrave, is uh, <laughs> trying to go over the evidence so far, he says, quote, of the whoever the killer is, he's aware of my friendship for Lady Constance. He knows something about Dr. Armstrong's colleagues and their present whereabouts. He knows the nickname of Mr. Marson's friend, and he even knows exactly where Miss Brent was two years ago on vacation. Which is funny to me because all of this is very unimpressive now because it would take like three minutes on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. We've all made ourselves shockingly easy to murder. <laughs> yeah, speaking of uh, character descriptions, I love this moment. Emily Brent sat on the summit of Soldier Island encased in her own armor of virtue. Wow. And Dave, don't you know at least one self-righteous Emily? <laughs> That's my mom's name. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Is this because she asked why you never say you're a husband? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I do. And as a, if this other Emily is listening, just know that it probably isn't you because I know at least 14 Emilies. So this one part threw me off, and this is after half of them had uh, been killed. All five of them had gone to the kitchen. They had opened a tin of tongue and two tins of fruit. And I was like, what? So this was something I was unaware of. I can easily get past references to telegrams and photographs undistractedly, uh, knowing the context of the time. But my brain hit the brakes at this moment. Can you imagine like, when people claim that they long for the good old days before smartphones and the internet? It's like, yeah, would you prefer the time when your go-to snack was a can with a tongue inside it? <laughs> Like I, I know it's a bummer that we have to have conversations now. Like I got an offended bender because the guy behind me was on Instagram. But would you rather live at a time where your dialogue starts with "fresh tongue is so much better than tinned"? <laughs> to me, it just sounds like a great slang for making out. If they're like, "Where were you two? Uh, we were opening a tin of tongue." <laughs> <laughs> We are sharing a tongue. That's the most disgusting lady in the tramp image I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of a noodle, it's just one tongue. <laughs> oh, how do you know when to stop? <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from And Then There Were None. One, Use the murder mystery toolkit. Two, introduce characters at their most character. Three, why are judges deified? And four, might I suggest your next anniversary gift, tongue. Clue is Dave's Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> 